Hebrews 1, please. I'll be referring many times throughout these teachings to back to the first few verses because it's all in there. 1, 1 to 4 is one complex sentence and the rest of Hebrews is the fanning out of that exordium. So you can do a lot of what I call exegetical archery from 1, 1 to 3 and fire some arrows deep into the epistle constantly. We see Jesus, increment 8. And the Greek phrase that you'll see next to increment 8 is E-I-S and then S-O-T-E-R-A and ace or ice soterion soterion I'll leave that up to you to figure out ace soterion there's a great soteriology in Hebrews we've been mentioning greet one another with a holy fist bump but according to the surgeon general that's not even enough he calls it social distancing so I think we should learn how to do the Japanese bow thing or whatever. So thought I was ahead of the curve. Speaking of being ahead of the curve, I don't want to be too avant-garde. I said I wasn't going to quote or make reference to verses, but it's a habit I can't break. Secondly, I know that it's helpful. And a lot of you who take notes, the reference points that you have when I mention where the verses are, is extremely helpful. And I was talking to John Durst, who does that after, and he says, I don't know what to do now. You know, where where do I go? You know, because that's where all the... So I will be giving a lot of verse references. And again, it's a, I don't want to be too avant-garde with this. It's avant-garde enough just to give you Greek phrases as titles. And they'll never run out, just like the water of the word never runs dry, that well never runs dry. And so as I always do, it's become habitual, speaking of habits, to entrust my spirit and yours into God's hand, to present our bodies to him as a living sacrifice, to commit our souls to him, especially in perilous times. He's our faithful creator, and mostly to give him our heart for the promise is in the scripture, they shall be taught of God. In 1 Thessalonians 4.9, the ultimate message is that we are taught of God to love one another. And that only occurs as the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God in our hearts. We see a great benevolence of God in Hebrews. We see his phenomenal philanthropy for humankind personified in Jesus Christ. God has spoken to us in these last days in a son. And his son's name is Jesus. And his name means Yahweh saves. Salvation is of Yahweh. Salvation is of the Lord. Speaking in a son, he speaks, therefore, of what Hebrews 2.3 calls so great salvation. And he speaks unto 
salvation. Hint, hint. First thing the writer of Hebrews says is that God spoke in many parts and in many ways by the prophets. And there are many ways that God spoke by the prophets. And he spoke through them not only by words or by messages, like Jeremiah speaking day after day in the temple, warning of the destruction of Jerusalem. Not only words, just as powerfully, sometimes even more powerfully, the way he spoke is through speech, acts, actions. God spoke to the fathers by the prophet Hosea, for example. By commanding him to take a prostitute for a wife. Extraordinary. Yahweh said to Hosea, go marry a prostitute and have children with her. For the whole nation continually commits spiritual prostitution by departing from the Lord. Hosea 1-2. Yahweh commanded that Hosea and his wife Gomer name their first son Jezreel, J-E-Z-R-E-E-L, because Yahweh was about to avenge the blood of Jezreel on the royal line of Jehu, the king. And he was about to put an end to the kingdom of Israel in Hosea 1.4. And so he adds, as he speaks to Hosea, on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. He would end the kingdom under Jehu by military victory of the other side in Hosea 1.5. Hosea's wife then had a daughter, and God commanded them to name her Lo-Ruhamah, lo Ruhama. And that means no compassion. No compassion. And another son. He has a son. And God commanded them to name him Lo Ami. Meaning, not my people. Yahweh was announcing to Israel in this speech act. Hosea hasn't had to say a word yet. God is speaking in his prophet. In the actions of marrying a prostitute, having children, calling them by names that Yahweh commands him to call. He was announcing to Israel in this, what we would call a speech act not just words. By this way of speaking in the prophets, he was speaking to the ancestors of Israel. By lo ami, the Lord was saying, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. He says this to our own Adamic nature. Yahweh was announcing to Israel 
this terrible thing in Hosea 1.9. But all of this did not amount to a message of rejection of Israel by the Lord. In fact, it led to the total restoration of both Israel and Judah. For in Hosea 1.10, which is the Septuagint 2.1, this is what the prophet says. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be as many as the grains of sand of the sea. And then he says, they will be as many as the stars of the sky. The sons of Israel, the number, will be as many as the grains of sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. <clears throat> Behold, so great a salvation, immeasurable. And then he says, and in the place where they were told, you are not my people. It will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Same people in the same place. On top of that. In Hosea 1.11, which is the Septuagint 2.2 2 of Hosea, and the sons and daughters of Judah and the sons and daughters of Israel will be gathered together and they shall appoint one ruler. Arche, one ruler. Arche is a name for Christ. A-R-C-H-E. Arche. They shall appoint one Ruler. Colossians 1.18 uses that word, Christ, for Christ. Genesis 1.1 uses that word. In Christ, God made the heavens and the earth. The expanse of his creation is equaled only by the expanse of his salvation and restoration. The son whom he appointed heir of all things is the savior of all things and the son by whom he created the universe is the son who saves and restores all things, the universe. Behold the saving significance of Jesus as creator, as heir, as son, as savior. The sons of daughters of Judah and the sons and daughters of Israel will be gathered together. They shall appoint one ruler. The Hebrew has one head. So we have the word summed up under one head. Sounds like Ephesians 1.10. Anakephalaio. And shall come up out of the earth. Reference to Resurrection. For great shall be the day of Jezreel. God spoke in the prophet Hosea of eschatological restoration and reconciliation. 
He uses those terms, no compassion, not my people, to contrast with his ultimate plan. The same place where God says, not my people, in Christ and him cursed and crucified. In the same place, Jesus raised from the dead. He said, you are all sons of the living God. The place is Jesus. Where Israel ruled by the tyranny of Jehu is finished. And Israel ruled by the freedom of the king of kings, Jesus, is liberated and freed. Please note the reference to the living God in that phrase in Hosea. You are the sons of the living God. The the phrase, the living God. This descriptor for God is found in the warning of Hebrews 3.12, where the pastor theologian says, watch out, brothers and sisters, lest there would be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief, prone to going away from the living God. Theu, zontos. Theu. Zontas, the living God, same as in Hosea 2.1 in the Septuagint, Hebrews 3.12. And then there's that famous a fortiori, which I proclaimed a little bit on Ash Wednesday. For if the blood of he goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean, sanctified them, so that they were outwardly purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the age-abiding spirit offered himself without defect to God, purify your inner consciousness from dead works to serve the living God? Theo, Zonti, the living God. I find it impossible to think about that phrase, the living God, without thinking of Jesus' words to the Sadducees who didn't believe either in angels or resurrection. In Luke 20, 38, Jesus said, He is not God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living to him. Take that two ways. All are living to God. And to God, the way he sees it, all are living. All are living to God. There will be nothing dead in the new creation. All will be living. The son, his son, who was dead, will be alive forevermore. All who have died will be alive forevermore with his life. All are living to God, Luke 20, 38, because in Christ all are made alive, just as in Adam all die. The kingdom of Israel that God ended was the kingdom ruled by the tyranny of Adam. 
the kingdom of Israel that lives now is the kingdom raised with Christ. Another way that God spoke in the prophets, and they're usually pretty shocking to modern sensibilities. Another way that he spoke not only through words, but through the actions that he commanded his prophet to do. We use Ezekiel. Ezekiel, yeah, this is in the Bible. And yeah, it's Lent, a special holy season. Ezekiel was commanded to cook and eat barley cakes. You say, well, what's so shocking about that? Well, he was to, instead of using charcoal in his charcoal grill, he was to use bricks of hardened human dung. Excrement. Because it's early in the day, I won't say the other word. Later, as I get tired of myself, I'll say that word. I'll be in a bad mood or something and say, Ezekiel cooked barley cakes on shit bricks. Something (laughs) stupid like that. Something crude. Something vulgar. Well, the prophets used to speak in a way that, well, it would have offended the sensibilities of people today. So God's going to make me a prophet in my old age. I guess I better start practicing on you. But if you read it, he says to bake them in the eyes of the people. You got your grill and all the people in Jerusalem are coming out to see you grill. And they're going to say, man, that that doesn't smell like charcoal. And he he says he was commanded to eat these barley cakes, to cook them, and then eat them. No, don't want to be a prophet. Right before the eyes of the people of Jerusalem, it says it right in Ezekiel 4.12, to use human excrement as fuel for the fire. And why? This is a speech act. Ezekiel's not saying anything. He's doing something. God has commanded him to do it. And this illustrates, says Yahweh, to the Israelites that, quote, this is how the Israelites will eat their bread, ceremonially unclean among the nations where I will banish them. Stark illustration. They'll never forget it. Ezekiel 4.13. God spoke in the prophets, but you never thought of that, did you? I did. Pray for me, the things I think of. But Ezekiel's message, like Hosea's, was one of restoration. Because in the closing verses of Ezekiel, God speaks in the prophet of a city whose builder and maker is God. Confer with Hosea, or rather with Hebrews 11.10 if you want. The very Last verse of Ezekiel says the name of that city will be Yahweh Shammah, which means Yahweh is there. Why go to that city? Because Yahweh is there. 
Still another, the many ways God spoke in the prophets, and I think Emery mentioned this fairly recently in a message, was how he spoke in Isaiah. Isaiah 20, and starting at verse 3, I'll read the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It says, the Lord said, as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and omen against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old alike, naked and barefoot, with bared buttocks to Egypt's shame. Those who made Cush their hope, Cush is basically Ethiopia in that section of Africa at the time, which was a great kingdom. And Egypt, their boast, will be dismayed and ashamed. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say on that day, look, this is what happened to those we relied on and fled for to help to rescue us from the king of Assyria. Then he says, now how will we escape? Last words of Isaiah 20 and verse 6. So God says, okay, Isaiah, walk around naked with no shoes on for three years and preach. Because I want to illustrate something. Isaiah doesn't have, at the, doesn't, reveal the conversation they had. Like, what? God made it very clear. Notice how this chapter ends with the question, though. How will we escape? In Hebrews 2.3, in Hebrews 2.3, the writer says, how will we escape? If we neglect such a great salvation, And so the Greek text of Isaiah chapter 20 and verse 6 says, not how will we escape, but the Greek text actually says, how will we be saved? You think of all these negative prophecies like not my people, no compassion, taken captive, spread over the world like a diaspora, like seeds thrown and scattered indiscriminately. You think of all those things And all it does is give rise to the question, how will we be saved? We have prophecies that we will be, that we will be regathered, that we will be restored, that there will be a universal restoration and a universal reconciliation. That's what all the prophets eventually come to. But how will we be saved? Like Job asked in his trial, how shall a young, how shall a person be justified in your sight? The Greek text of Isaiah chapter 20 and verse 6 says then, how will we be saved? I'd say that was the question of questions of the Old Testament. The answer to that question of questions is found in God speaking in a son. 
whom he appointed as heir of all things. And by whom he created the universe. A son who is later called the originator of salvation, the founder of salvation, the leader of salvation, however you want to call it. It's a key term, a catchphrase in Hebrews. Archegon, ton, and then we have archegon, A-R-C-H-E-G-O-N. Ton, archegon, tes, so, te, rias. the founder of our salvation. God has spoken in a son whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom he created the universe, and whom he made the originator of our salvation, having perfected him through suffering. That's the biggest question in Hebrews. What does it mean that Jesus was perfected through suffering? I've read books already and finished them on Hebrews that tried to answer the question and got so far and so far so good. But we're going to go one step further in this study altogether. I just want to put the question before you at first. It's worth noting that though Egypt and Assyria are spoken of here in a rather negative light, in Isaiah 19, 24, and 25, God had already spoken with anticipation of the eschaton, or the final things. And you know what he said about Assyria and Egypt and Israel? Similar to what Ezekiel said about Sodom. She will be restored. Isaiah 19, 24, and 25 says, On that day, there will be a triple alliance. Israel with the Assyrians and the Egyptians, all blessed in the land. Yahweh of the armies has blessed them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my heritage. Peter wasn't kidding when he said all the prophets from time immemorial had one ultimate message, and it was apokatastasios pantone, the restoration of all all beings. Paul wasn't kidding either when he said the mystery of God's will is to sum up under one head, ana kephale, a'o, all things in the heavens and on earth, that head being Christ. So how and when and where does all this come about? Well, when God spoke in a son, 
For God spoke not only with words, but with one word, Jesus. And not only with words, but in the action of Jesus being hoisted up on a cross, lifted up to reveal the unrestricted love of God for all of humanity. All of humanity. For by the grace of God, Jesus, whom we see crowned with glory and honor now, by the grace of God, tasted or endured death for all mankind. Isaiah's got nothing on him. Jesus hanging naked on a cross tasted food cooked with human waste as it were as he tasted the wages for all of our sins to purify us from the dead works that Paul considered to be dung when compared with the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord Philippians 3 7 and 8 So in the same place, says Hosea, where I say, not my people, I say you are the sons of the living God because of Jesus Christ and him crucified, raised, elevated, and exalted. In the same place where the kingdom of Israel under Jehu, who kept and maintained idolatry because he thought it was Politically expedient. We see this trend today. Oh, let's wear the fashions of the terrorist to be politically expedient. Let's applaud like the women applauded when the towers came down in Palestine the high-pitched scream. Let's applaud at Hollywood awards ceremonies like they applauded the collapse of the towers in New York to be politically expedient. Let's do a lot of things that we don't believe, that we don't really think, that we don't really say, and that we never really practice, but let's do that overtly to be politically winsome. Yeah, well, why don't you eat barley cakes baked with shit? All right. My sister's listening on the on the phone. Becky, don't tell mom and dad. I just Ricky swore. Ricky, did you swear? (laughs) No, Dad. Who told you that? You don't know how many times I said that in my life. What? Were you speeding today in my car and squealing tires? What? He said, I'm friends with a state trooper. Yeah, okay. Well, I guess, you know, my foot just slipped. 
My dad worked in the post office. We lived in a town of a thousand people, so you couldn't do anything that somebody didn't find out about and report and ended up at the post office. (laughs) So I'd see dad come home and, is that you that put that cigarette out in the bathroom and the smoldering trash can when I came home was smoldering because I haven't smoked a cigarette all day. Was that you, Rick? (laughs) There's no defense. There's no defense. You're 11, Rick. You're 11. I was thinking today, every once in a while I have to take a little vacation from all this heavy stuff, but I was thinking about a guy that was in our dorm. His name was Steve Schaefer. And he introduced us by, he introduced himself in a way that I always got best friends with the guys that came in and did something totally absurd. And so he came in and he said, oh, I see you guys have cigarettes. May I have most of them? And I said, I like this guy. May I have most of them? So we became friends. I wonder if he's still around. Let an old man reminisce. In the same place, therefore, where the kingdom of Israel under Jehu, under the tyranny of sin and the fear of death was called not my people. In that same place, Jesus crucified and then exalted through resurrection. Israel is called the sons of the living God. Moreover, in Jesus, all the nations, including Assyria and Egypt, are to be restored. God spoke finally and definitively in a son in these last days, in the last of these times, to us and for us. He spoke in a son to us, and he spoke in a son for us and for all. How will we be saved indeed? For there is salvation in none other than Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved, but the name Jesus, says Peter in Acts 4.12. The name Jesus is what the Father has spoken with finality in these last days. Jesus and him lifted up on the cross and then elevated to the highest heaven. That's Yahweh. Jesus crucified is how God spoke in a son in these last days. The once and for all sacrifice of himself by which he took away sin, is how God spoke to us in a son who is the originator of salvation. So great salvation means so large, broad, wide, high, and deep. With immeasurable dimensions. To see Jesus is to see the Father who spoke in him. Finally, in these last days. To see Jesus crowned with glory and honor is to see our own destiny. 
for the philanthropic and beneficent intention of God is to crown humanity with glory and honor. And so in Jesus, we see our destiny. We see the future of the new creation in the risen Christ, crowned once with a crown of thorns, for he took away the curse of Adam, crowned now with glory and honor. All whom God justifies, he glorifies. Romans 8.30, and God has justified all humanity in Jesus. Romans 3.26, He justifies all humanity with the intention of glorifying them. In fact, he already has in justifying them, glorified them. All whom God justifies, he glorifies. And he has justified all of humanity in Jesus. If people are ever put in touch with the real, and the true, the authentic, the genuine, if people are ever to be put in touch with the real and the true, it will be Jesus with whom They are in touch. For we have a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our weakness, our desperate weakness. He can be touched. He has experienced it. He does sympathize. He is the human expression of divine philanthropy and beneficence as a faithful and merciful high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our weakness. Hebrews 4.15. This same son, Jesus, the son of God, who passed through the heavens, not through the outer and middle court into the holy of all by a tent made by man of this creation, he passed through the heavens having offered his own body and his own blood, this son of God who passed through the heaven is still able to be touched with the feelings of our weaknesses, our proneness to sin, our frailties, our infirmities. And he runs to our aid. If people are ever to see the real and the true, it will be when they see Jesus. I think I was the only fan of George Harrison's solo album called All Things Must Pass when I was about 19 or 20. And the key, one of the key songs he came out with was My Sweet Lord. I still love the song minus all the Hare Krishna crap. But And I like the way Billy Preston did it, who was a believer. But I was always struck because it rang true with me so much in my late teens and early 20s. I really want to see you, Lord. 
But it takes so long, my Lord. I really want to see you. I really want to know you. I really want to see you, Lord. But it takes so long, my Lord. I'm still kind of saying that now. But we see him now. Through the lens of the scriptures, he has answered that deep desire of my soul. Not completely, for we haven't yet seen him as he is when we're made like him. But blessed are we. For the eyes of our heart have been enlightened, says Ephesians 1.18, to see Jesus crowned with glory and honor in Hebrews 2.8 who, and this is the point of 1.4 and onward of Hebrews, though greater by infinity than all the angels, he was given a position and accepted a position lower than angels for a little while with one explicit intention for the suffering of death. For the express purpose of tasting death for everyone in order to bring many sons and daughters to glory. Please note that word many. And remember what it just might mean. Hebrews 2, 10 to 13. So what are we doing here? We're contemplating the exordium of Hebrews, the initial complex Sentence, especially one, one to four. And what it reads like this so far, we can take our time with it in many parts and in, in various ways, various ways, the barley cakes, the naked prophet, the children of the prostitute, their names in many ways, in various ways, many parts in various ways. Long ago, God who spoke provisionally to the father's in the prophets in these last days has spoken definitively, totally, and finally to us in a son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he made the universe. You see, this isn't just to make us aware of the vastness of what he's going to inherit or the vastness of what was created through him. This is ultimately to give us a sense of the vastness of his universally saving significance of so great a salvation. So despite what commentators and preachers and evangelists and all heated up evangelists like to say, Hebrews isn't teaching about any loss of eternal salvation or hell. Because this is already fixed in our mind before we receive the warnings. Neglecting the salvation. Neglecting, we could say, and I can say with confidence, if we neglect what we've learned here since we moved in 10 years ago, if we just forgot it and blew it off and neglected it, it wouldn't be prudent. Wouldn't be good. After the two references to God speaking, there are two verbs describing God's actions. He appointed a son, his unique son, to be heir of all things. And by whom God made the universe, as Hebrews 3, 4 later goes on to say, that the builder of all things is God. 
The reference to all things being inherited by the Son is meaningful, especially given reference to the universality of the Son's significance as shown elsewhere in Scripture. And though Hebrews is unique, it's not isolated from the rest of Scripture. For not least, his saving significance is found. For example, in Ephesians 1.10, all things in the heavens and on earth are to be summed up in Christ. And according to Acts 3.19 to 21, the times of the restoration of all things is fulfilled when Jesus is sent from heaven, where he currently has his temporary residence. We have temporary residence here. He has temporary residence there. We see him there crowned with glory and honor, having by the grace of God tasted death for every one of the human race. So when all things are recapitulated in Jesus, then all times will become simultaneous. And all peoples from all times will be contemporaries. Once this happened, there are two times when all times became simultaneous and all peoples were gathered in one place. One was in Jesus Christ and him crucified and then raised. The second time is when Christ comes with salvation Ice soteria. When all are made alive in him, for all flesh together will see that salvation of God. In Isaiah 40 and verse 5 in Luke 3, 6. For they will all see Jesus, who is our salvation. Let's do some exegetical archery and we'll close. Fire an arrow to Hebrews 9, 28. We've already looked at 24 to 26. Skip 27 for now. Hit 28. Hebrews 9.28. It announces that the Christ who appears in heaven for us as our great high priest, advocate and intercessor before the face of God his Father. And who appeared once for all at the juncture of the ages to put away sin by the offering of himself. Verse 28, so also having once offered himself to bear the sins of the many. He will appear a second time. A second time. Ek Deuteron. Like Deuteronomy, the second law, the second giving of the law, the second iteration of the law. He will appear a second time. Time, ek deuteron, without sin, without needing to be made sin, for he was already once made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He will appear a second time without sin to those who are eagerly awaiting him for salvation. E I S. S-O-T-E-R-I-A-N. Ice Soterion. That's the name of today's message, Increment 8.
Those who are consciously, there's two people, two kinds of creatures waiting eagerly for him. One is the bride, those who are aware that they're waiting for him. And then there's others, the rest, who are eagerly awaiting for something, they know not what. For some deliverance, as McCartney's song, The Hope of Deliverance says. Some vague hope that things will be better. That's what politicians dance around with every four years, every two years, every time they run. Things will be better under me. Things will be better with me. And everybody's hoping for something better. Some, I think everybody, don't, they don't even know it, but they're hoping for a better day, a better time, a better future. They don't know that what they're waiting for eagerly is the coming of Jesus Christ from heaven. They don't know it, but they're eagerly waiting for him. So who's eagerly waiting for him? All creation. All creation doesn't say we're waiting eagerly for Jesus. All creation just groans. The mourning of the dove in the morning. The creaking of the tree, the sap frozen in the winter. All creation groaning. And we together with it, waiting for the apocalypse of the sons of the living God. The appearance of Jesus Christ. So those who are consciously eagerly waiting him constitute the bride in Revelation 22.20, who says, come, Lord Jesus. Those who are eagerly waiting for him and are not conscious of him and maybe even call him by all different kinds of other names wait with all creation for a liberation from corruption. They're eagerly awaiting him for salvation though they do not know him. Blessed are you waiting for him whom you know. This second time, ek deutero, refers to the future moment when the Father sends Jesus from heaven to earth for the universal restoration, apokatastasios panton, Acts 3.20.21, which all the prophets spoke about, which God spoke about in all the prophets. So no matter what negative thing he says, or what bizarre thing he asks his prophets to do, the ultimate message is the restoration of all things and all the prophets from the time of the beginning. And speaking of Peter, there is no book in the Bible, none, bar none. There is no other book in the Bible but First Peter that resembles Hebrews in so many different ways and parts. And I'll introduce it. And may may even take a segment on that. We got time. I think. For this one who is called a son, the one in whom God has spoken to us in these last days is by name Jesus, whose name means Yahweh saves or the salvation of Yahweh. Peter says, quote, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord 
and he may send Jesus, who has been appointed Messiah for you. Heaven must welcome him until the times of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning. Acts 3.20b through Acts 3.21, HCSB. In that important passage, Peter, the speaker, uses both kairoi, a term for seasons or epochs, and chronoi, he uses, for a time that means times. And it can be compared with 1 Peter one twenty and Ephesians one ten. Kairoi, K-A-I-R-O-Y, is used by Paul in Ephesians 1.10 where he speaks of the administration of the fullness of seasons or epochs or eras of time, segments of history. The administration of the fullness of times is when God makes all of those epochs into one time where all humanity, the only way that all humanity can be contemporaries is by resurrection coming forth from the earth, coming out from the sea, being raised from the dead in Christ. When all time, when all the epochs of human history become simultaneous. Chronoi, C-H-R-O-N-O-I, where we get the word chronology, is used by Peter, and this is an extremely important verse, in 1 Peter 1.20 where we have the same idea that's found in Hebrews 1-2, that in these last days, says God, he has spoken definitively in a son. Peter says it this way, he, Christ as a lamb without defect who redeemed you, in one eighteen and 19, by precious blood, he was destined before the foundation of the world but was revealed at the end of the times for you. God spoke in a son in these last days to us. Peter says, Christ, who was destined from before the foundation of the world, was apocalypto, revealed at the end of the times for you. Peter's words for you are vital. God spoke to us in these last days definitively and completely in a son, namely Jesus. For you, if you put Peter together with it, divine philanthropy, God's passionate love for humankind and for each and every human, and divine promeity, his being for us, are definitively manifested in Jesus, whom God has revealed at the end of the times. Peter uses the same word, ep-eschatu, ep-eschatu, E-P, then E-S-C-H-A-T-O-U. And then Peter says, de-humas, for the sake of you. God who spoke in these last days to us in a son, match that with Peter, Christ has been revealed in the end of these times for you. That's for everybody. Yet 
east and west, north and south. So in the last of the times in 1 Peter 1.20, and in these last days in Hebrews 1.2, match up. God spoke in a son to us in Hebrews 1.2. Christ was revealed. Actually, the word is thanarao, which is akin to apocalypto. Christ was revealed for you in 1 Peter 1.20. Israel and all you nations. This is how you will be saved. What if God says you're going to speak to the United Nations? Are you going to say, The world's coming to an end in 12 years. How dare you? Or are you going to say, this is, oh, nations. This is how you will be saved. Believe me, you won't be man of the year for that or woman of the year on Time magazine. Probably get pulled off with a hook for preaching the gospel. Because people like lies. They love them. You take refuge in a lie. The truth takes away all your, it strips away all your refuges. Makes you face reality, which is pretty good. So in closing, this is how you will be saved. But how about this? This is how you have been saved. God spoke in a son for salvation, for our salvation. So as God spoke to do an inclusio with the beginning of the message, as God spoke not only with words by the prophets, but also by acts, so he spoke in a son, not only by words, but by reconciling the world to himself in a crucified Messiah, whom he raised from the dead and exalted to his own right hand in the heavens, above the heavens, gave him a name above all. All names. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Thank you, Father. We can call you that because we are in your son, your unique son. Thank you for speaking to us in these last days in a son. And thank you, Father, for giving us eyes to see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. For in seeing him, we see our future, and we understand your philanthropic and beneficent purpose for humankind, for you made us to be crowned with glory and honor, something that does not occur outside of Jesus, but something that most emphatically has occurred and will be manifested in him. For that, we're grateful. 